Hello and welcome to the Rare Possessions Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galletti. And joining me each week to give us insights and perspectives is the archivist from Book of Mormon Central, Jared Riddick. Today we are going over Chapter 4 of Life of Nephi, Son of Lehi by George Q. Cannon. And this chapter brings up some uh, interesting challenges that some readers of the Book of Mormon have had, namely Nephi slaying Laban. There's some interesting things from Book of Mormon Central and some scholarship into the legality of the time that we were going to go over. It's actually a no-why. Yeah, no-why 256. Was Nephi's slaying of Laban legal? And so this no-why goes over essentially the law of the time and how it might have been viewed. Indeed. If, if it had been adjudicated in, in that sense. So what, what are some of the things that are brought out with respect to what we might call a legal justification for what Nephi chose to do? Well, this no-why cites a lot of the work of uh, Jack Welch, who's uh, lit, written a number of things on the legal perspectives in the Book of Mormon and laws and how they factored in that way. And Welch explained that the critical legal factors in this case are, number one, Nephi's state of mind, or did the killer lie in wait or come presumptuously with murderous intent, to quote him. And then two, the role of divine will. Uh, did God deliver him into his hand? Now, that's a Odd thing to base law off of. Today, that seems very strange. It is. And yeah, our, our modern definition is very different from the, uh, the ancient definition of murder, which required premeditation uh, to have been pre-planned or implemented through treachery. And so it seems like Nephi is writing with their definition of murder in mind. He's very aware of his audience, even though he, he's not, maybe not be writing for the modern day, but he's definitely writing for his descendants, at least. Well, he was writing for people who weren't aware of the legal yeah. code at the time. Yeah, they're, they're not, they don't know his culture. And so he's putting these things in there. And he's also had a lot of time to reflect on it. As we mentioned before, this is being written decades after the fact. Nephi's had some time to reflect on it. And even though he realizes it's legally justified, he knows that people are going to cringe at it a little bit. And well, so he, he did. And he did. He's, he wrestled uh, with it. I've never drawn it. Yeah, he never shed blood before. So this is something big for Nephi. Yeah. And I think there was a, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but. Elder Holland talked about this, that he kind of alluded to the idea that, that Nephi put this in the story when he could have possibly just said, after much tribulation, we obtained the plates. He didn't have to go into these details, but there's a very specific reason. And I think part of it goes back to what we discussed in last episode is that he's helping to form the narrative of, I want to say, divine providence, that his, he was guided in his actions by God. And that's really key to the culture of the people of the time. So we also have another cultural thing that comes up with respect to Zoram and some of the language that Nephi uses with regards to oath-making. Before, when they were outside the wall, Nephi would use this phrase or the phraseology of as the Lord liveth and as I, as, as I live, so on and so forth will take place. And he uses that with Zoram after, they, after Laban's been killed and they're outside the wall and he's scared and you know they've been invited or he's been invited to go with Nephi and his family. He, he offers them this this oath language. And we have some scholarship from Hugh Nibley, I believe, on that. Hugh Nibley from the Institute Manual, actually, uh, for those who are interested, uh, for chapter two in the Institute Manual. And he says, so we see that the only way that Nephi could possibly have pacified the struggling Zorman an instant was to utter the one oath that no man would dream of breaking, the most solemn of all oaths to the Semite, as the Lord liveth and as I live. So this was essentially saying what in modern day parlance? What, what would it sound like today? I, by my life, I will do this. Like, I will support you to the death. Yeah, I'd rather die than not have this happen. Indeed. Which is as powerful as you can get, really. Mm -hmm. It's so, not something to be given in lightness. You will be held to this oath. Yeah. So in the book here in chapter four, we have George Q. Cannon bringing out some of those aspects and 
continuing to fill out the narrative history of Nephi's life. And so we have this and so much more. So please stay tuned to the next chapter next week. But this time we're going to move on to chapter four. Here it is now, chapter four of Life of Nephi, Son of Lehi. The Life of Nephi, the Son of Lehi, Chapter 4. The record does not inform us in what position Lehi had left his riches. We may reasonably conclude that he had left them in a place of security, for his sons found gold and silver and other valuable things and carried them to Laban's house and proposed to him to give him these in exchange for the records. Laban would not consent to give up the plates, but the property the young men offered for them was so very valuable that, as the record states, he lusted after it and was determined to have it. He therefore thrust them out and sent servants to kill them so that he might obtain their property. To save their lives, they had to leave their valuables and make the best of their way out of the city. They fled into the wilderness and thus escaped and hid in the cavity of a rock. Laman by this time got angry. We are not told that he got angry at Laban, but at his father and Nephi and he made Lemuel angry also. They said a good many hard things, and they whipped Nephi with a rod, and we should infer that Sam got a share of the beating. It is very probable that he stood up for Nephi and defended him, and in that way incurred their anger. While they were beating Nephi, an angel of the Lord came and stood before them, and he said to them, Why do ye smite your younger brother with a rod? Know ye not that the Lord hath chosen him to be a ruler over you, and this because of your iniquities? Behold, ye shall go up to Jerusalem again, and the Lord will deliver Laban into your hands. After speaking to them, the angel departed. We have heard of a good many people who have thought if they could only see an angel and he should tell them anything, they would believe it and never afterwards doubt it. Yet here were these two young men who had seen and been spoken to by an angel, and he had scarcely gone when they began to murmur. They did not believe that which the angel had told them, for they said, How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man, and he can command fifty. Yea, even he can slay fifty. Then why not us? We can judge from this language how little they knew about God or his power. Nephi again had to become their teacher. He encouraged them to go up again to Jerusalem, and to be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For, said he, he is mightier than all the earth, and of course mightier than Laban and his fifty, or even his tens of thousands. He quoted them what Moses had done, and asked them how they could doubt when an angel had spoken to them. After all that he said, they were still angry and still murmured, yet they followed him until they came to the outside of the walls of the city. Nephi got them to hide themselves outside the walls. Then he, by himself, crept into the city. He had no plan arranged beforehand as to what he would do. He trusted entirely to the Lord and was led by the Spirit he went in the direction of Laban's house. As he drew near, there he saw a man lying on the ground who proved to be Laban, full of wine and drunk. He had on a sword which Nephi drew from the sheath and examined. He has given us a description of this weapon, the most famous of any that we have any account of. It served afterwards as his model when he found himself under the necessity of manufacturing swords with which to arm his people to defend themselves against the attacks of his brothers and their children. He also wielded on more than one occasion in battle, and it was handed down among his descendants from generation to generation, being kept with their sacred records. 
it is still in existence, and besides being seen by the prophet Joseph, was shown to the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris, with the plates, the breastplate, the Urim and Thummim, and the miraculous directors which were given to Lehi, and of which we shall say more as we proceed. The hilt of this sword was of pure gold, and the workmanship was exceedingly fine. The blade was of the most precious steel. After drawing the sword, Nephi was constrained by the spirit to kill Laban. But he said in his heart, Never at any time have I shed the blood of man. And he shrunk from the thought and desired that he might not kill him. The spirit said unto him again, Behold, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Nephi knew that Laban had sought to take his and his brother's lives, that he was a murderer at heart, and he knew that he would not hearken to the commandments of the Lord, and that he also had robbed them of their property. All these thoughts would come to pass through his mind at such a time. The Spirit said unto him again, Slay him, for the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. Behold, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief. These words brought to his mind the words of the Lord to him in the wilderness, to the effect that inasmuch as his seed should keep his commandments, they should prosper in the land of promise. He also thought that they could not keep the commandments of the Lord according to the law of Moses unless they should have the law. Nephi knew that the law was engraved upon the plates of brass. He also knew that the Lord had delivered Laban into his hands, that he might obtain the records as he had commanded. His reluctance to shed blood was strong, but the voice of the Spirit was stronger, and he obeyed it. He took Laban by the hair of the head and cut off his head with his own sword. He then took his garments and put them upon himself and girded his armor about his loins. Then going forth to the treasury of Laban, he saw Laban's servant, who had the keys of the treasury. Him he commanded in the voice of Laban to go with him. The servant, seeing the dress and the sword, supposed it was Laban, and addressed him accordingly. He spoke to him about the elders of the Jews, for he knew that Laban had been out by night among them. Nephi replied to him as though he was Laban, and he also spoke to him about carrying the plates of brass to his brethren, who were outside the walls, and ordered him to follow him. The servant thought he spoke of the brethren of the church, and still thinking it was Laban, followed him. While they were going to where Nephi's brothers were outside the walls, the servant kept up his conversation concerning the elders of the Jews, and it was not until they came in sight of Laman, Lemuel, and Sam that he found out his mistake. When these latter saw two men coming towards them, and one of them Laban, as they supposed, they were frightened and ran. They imagined that Laban, having killed Nephi, had now come to kill them. It was only when Nephi called to them and made himself known to them that they stopped. In the meantime, Laban's servant began to tremble, and he would have run back into the city had not Nephi prevented him. Nephi was a large man, and he had received much strength from the Lord. And when he saw the man's inclination to run away, he seized him and held him fast. Nephi gave him his oath that he need not be afraid, that if he would listen unto them, they would spare his life, and that if he would go down with them into the wilderness, he should be a free man such as they were. He told him that the Lord had commanded them to do what they had done, and should they not be diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord? He said to him again, that if he would go with them into the wilderness to his father, he should have a place among them. Zoram was this servant's name. Nephi's words gave him courage and promised he would go with them 
and he gave them his oath that he would remain with them from that time forward. Faithfully was that oath kept. At no time do we hear anything respecting Zoram faltering in his devotion to Nephi. He was ever his true friend, and his descendants were numbered with the descendants of Nephi. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions Podcast from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. For the latest information on additions to the Book of Mormon Central archive, or to inquire about archive items like this one, visit us online at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.